Greenleaf Green Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Greenleaf Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. And um, in the studio, you, we have Jacob and Zane. Hello. All right. Um, so we have a pretty packed program today. Um, we have an interview with um, Federico or Fred Fontes. Um, he's a bit um, to talk about, you know, the political situation that's happening in Venezuela, um, something that we, you know, regularly cover in Green Left Weekly Radio. Um, and we then we'll have an interview later on with um, someone from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition to talk about um, their upcoming conference or youth summit that's happening this weekend. All right, um, just before uh, kind of we move on, um, I'd like to acknowledge that we are, you know, that acknowledge um, the lands by which, you know, um, this... Radio programs um, is being you know broadcast to on the Wondery land of the Kulin Nation, um, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Indeed. Okay, so Zane, you ha- you have some news you wanted to immediately share for the program to discuss? Yeah, well, just uh, this story that's been going around this week. Uh, some three CR listeners probably would have. Heard of it? There was a report released by the uh, University of Oregon, which has been picked up by a bunch of media, and it is saying that having one fewer child would have the biggest impact on your personal carbon dioxide footprint. So it's a uh, just another rehash of the the Malthusian argument, or the arguments sort of initially. Um, captured by Thomas Malthus in the uh, early to mid 1800s and so there's there's a lot of issues with this thing so the the methodology of it is is garbage they basically say that the carbon footprint of a of a human is like the uh if you take the carbon dioxide emissions of the USA and you divide that by the population of the USA then you get the per capita emissions of your quote unquote average American um, that's bad enough that's a really problematic methodology because it's not your average American who is um, supporting new oil pipelines and supporting the ongoing use of coal fired power and all that Anyway, this methodology goes further than that, though, and it says if you have a child, you are, I think it was 50% responsible for your child's entire carbon emissions that will occur throughout their entire life, and then you're 25% responsible for their kid's emissions throughout its entire life, 
and then your 12.5% responsible for your great-grandchild's emissions throughout its entire life, and then your 6.25% responsible for your great-great-great-grandchild's emissions throughout its entire life. So it's this ridiculous thing, like, do I get to just put half of my supposed carbon footprint onto my parents? It's just a weird pee and cup game where it sort of, it tallies up literally for the next 500 years of emissions, uh, all this stuff. And to me, the big thing is humans don't have a set carbon footprint. But how big our carbon footprint is, is dependent on how how well we can weave ourselves into the ecology of this planet. And so if we can do a, a good job of becoming symbiotic with this planet, we could achieve a very, very small um, carbon footprint per, per person. So I just think it's it's rubbish. And, and really, the key thing at the moment, if we don't get rid of capitalism, we're, uh, we're up the proverbial creek. Mm. So I think it's really problematic to raise things like this which give the illusion that oh, as, as long as my personal carbon footprint is reduced by, you know, doing various things, eating local organically grown food, blah, 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 um, getting rid of a car, giving up transatlantic flights, then I can, I've done my part to save the planet. It's, it's not really, it doesn't work like that. We need to collectively get rid of capitalism and create, you know, I think socialism, whatever name you want to give it, we need to create some sort of alternative mm. system which prioritises not trashing the planet over turning every available resource into cash right now. Yeah, you're kind of um, you're basically kind of repeating one of the articles um, that's in the latest Green Left Weekly um, written by Maya, Mia Sanders, you know, where she basically, you know, makes this argument, you know, that capitalism is basically, you know you know, one of the, con- it links um, with continued environmental problems, um, unless we start thinking seriously about an alternative. I mean, making a transition out of capitalism isn't actually going to fix the environment overnight, but it'll put us into a better position um, to solve the environmental problems because basically under uh, the current status quo, it basically means corporations decide what they want um, which is basically building more coal mines, um, um, or if corporations um, implement, you know, say renewable energy, you know, or something, it's still dependent on, you know, them exporting coal to other countries or exporting fossil fuels to other countries, which is mm. no solution. And then there's also the the context of say imperialist in- exploitation of third world countries. To, you know, say, you know, and they, they always put, point to the examples of these great, you know, first world uh, countries and the Scandinavian countries, but, you know, all their gr- fantastic, you know, advances are, you know, in the context of, you know, exploitation of third world nations. Mm. Yeah, and that's the other aspect of the Malthusian focus on population. Invariably, it, it gets, um, 
that discussion gets taken down a path of, oh, we've got to stop brown people in the third world from breeding. And that's the really insidious part of Malthusianism, Malthusianism is that it gets taken in this really racist, um, you know, horrid direction, which starts attacking immigrants and attacking poor people. The reason that people in the global south have large families is because in the absence of a welfare system, having a large family is a way to ensure that you get looked after because your extended family will will go out there and, and find food and find medical care and sort of de facto, in a not very good way, will sort of provide that mm. it's sort it, of a rudimentary safety net which doesn't... It's the same story for um, for even within um, poor working class families in the first world because, you know, it's actually... Many people don't realise that, you know, this sort of ideal, the nuclear family, you know, having, you know, two or one children and those two or one children have their own individual independence and, you know, they go to college, you know, they get a job. That's actually a luxury mainly afforded by very well-off people because for poor working-class families, they actually can't afford to have their, you know, to just simply just have two children um, and then those two children just go and do their own thing and um, pursue their own independence and um, and so on. That That's just not the reality for, you know, a lot of poor working-class um, families. You know, they need to have, you know, more... They need to have at least a lot, quite a large family, you know, to as you say, for that kind of support network. Um, now, I just wanted to quickly make... We have five minutes into our first interview. Um, one, of the more inter- one of the more interesting news stories um, that's come up and it's pretty shocking to a lot of people is the uh, um, shock kind of resignations of, you know, the two Green senators, Larissa Waters um, and Scott Ludlam. Mm. Um, and it's all based on kind of this technicality, which is basically that, you know, sen- um, people running for the Senate can't actually, uh, you can't run unless if you have dual citizenship, which is, I think, you know, a very kind of undemocratic, kind of arbitrary kind of part of the Constitution, especially since, um, by contrast, if you're running for state, you can, a- you can actually be a dual citizen. And it's also, for, in the case of these Green Senators, they were also very unclear. Um, they also didn't realise they actually had dual citizenship because I think uh, both of these Green Senators were born... Um, Scott Ludlam was born in um, New Zealand and Louisa Waters was born in, in Winnipeg in Canada. Canada. Mm. But they both moved to Australia quite early in their life. Mm. Um, so there was probably, you know, if there was no opportunity to really... They didn't really think much of it. Um, probably at that time, and I had a, I think I have a friend who was actually just checking her dual citizenship, and apparently she is a dual citizen. And she did, re- and you actually have to pay apparently like a thousand dollars to actually even renounce her UK citizenship. So hmm. it's like very, um, and hmm. it's um, so yeah, they literally weren't even aware of it because they were little kids when it happened, and they've they've spent more or less their whole yeah. life here. I think the most, I think one thing that has to be said on the program um, is how opportunist and slimy Malcolm Turnbull has been in response to this and basically demanding 
um, on this technicality that Larissa, I don't think this is going to happen, I don't think it will hold up in court, um, that Larissa Waters and Scott Lundham pay back millions of dollars in the wages that they're being paid to as a senator, which is completely ridiculous. It's mm. like, um, it's sort of like, I'm at, say someone got employed and he wasn't actually supposed to be, he or she was not supposed to be employed under, you know, current labour law or something, and then expecting them after being found out that they have to pay back everything, well, even though in yeah. that meantime they had did their job yeah. that they were paid to do hmm. um, from start to finish. So it's just the same, it's the same case in Larissa and um, Scott Ludlam. And also it's, it's completely cruel to subject them to millions of dollars of debt and also the fact that Malcolm Turnbull probably takes no action on the actual rorters within his own party. Mm. Um, like, you know, I'm thinking like Bronwyn Bishop, for example. And the 679 large corporations in this country who pay no tax at all. Yeah. He's got nothing to say about them, literally nothing to say about them. Yeah, but he somehow has has the goal to so basically say that, you know, in light of this technicality that, you know, um, Larissa Waters and Scott Ludlam should pay back millions in dollars. It's, mm. it's, a, it's a complete, you know, scandalous and it's a joke. <laughs> and what do you think? Do you reckon they should have contested it? Um, I, and sort I think, of gone, okay, we'll, we'll renounce our citizenship, but you should let us stay on. I think, um, I think, I, I think it would have probably been worthwhile for Larissa to, to, um, to, um, to challenge it. I think in the case of Scott Ludlam, this is just a bit of an observation. I think Scott Ludlam has actually saw this maybe possibly a way out because I think he has been, you know, suffering, you know, a bit of some depression and mm. this is just something I've observed based on the public information um, because, you know, he did take a break recently for mental health and mm. maybe he sees this as a relief to relieve himself from the responsibilities of being in a Senate position. Um, apparently, um, the second there's a there's someone who is going to replace Larissa Waters, but there's also a potential possibility he might not be able to place her. Um, this is a former Democrat. I forgot his name. Andrew Bartlett. Uh, Andrew Bartlett, who I actually think would be actually a de- decent replacement for Larissa Waters, even though he is a you know um you know as you know left wing radicals, we have our own criticisms of you know the Democrats, but you know mm. Andrew Bartlett has actually been quite a you know quite involved in the social movements and is quite active in the Brisbane active scene. Hmm. activist scene, so I think he'll be, he'll be a good replacement for Larissa. Um, but apparently he might not be able to be eligible to be a uh, senator because he works, he in theory might work for the public service because he works as a research assistant for the ANU and it's unclear whether that's the money he, the wage he gets for that is public money. Um, basically it already in, under the Democratic constitution, you apparently cannot run for office. Uh, as a public servant, so yeah, so you take you have to take six weeks off mm. when you're running for election, um, and you did Bartlett do that at the time of the election, though? Well, not well. It's unclear. Yeah, um, I would have to read more a bit more into it. Mm. Um, but it's probably time for we might be able to continue a bit of this discussion later. We'll move on to something else. But it's seven fifteen, so we can't mm. do for our first interview. So I'll just play. An announcement, and then we'll get um, that started. The Australian Unemployed Workers Union invites you all to a rousing Jam for Jobs and Justice concert on Sunday, July 30, featuring the Horn Stars, Reds Under the Bed, and Moreland City Marching Band at the Bella Union Bar, Trades Hall, Carlton, from 2 to 5 p.m. 
For tickets, phone 9650-5699 or book online at bellaunion.com.au. $15 full, $10 concession. Raffles and prizes are part of the deal. For more info, contact unemployedworkersunion.com. Help protect the rights and dignity of unemployed workers and pensioners. Get along to Jobs and Justice. Bella Union, Sunday, July 30. Okay, so on the line we have um, Fred Fontes. Um, he is an Australian Venezuela solidarity activist, um, co-author of Latin American's Turbulent Transitions, the Future of 21st Century Socialism, and a Socialist Alliance member. Um, good morning, Fred. Uh, good morning. All right, so um, what can you tell us, maybe we can start off, you know, about what is the kind of current, you know, a bit of a short summary maybe of the current situation, the political situation in Venezuela, especially for maybe new li- listeners who might not know much about what's actually happening in Venezuela because all they've been hearing is what's in Channel 7 News. Sure. Well, look, obviously the Venezuela has um, been in the media spotlight very much so uh, since the 1st of April, which is when the opposition protests uh, really sort of kicked up uh, in terms of the the, the level of street mobilizations that have been happening against the government of President Nicolas Maduro. Uh, we've now had uh, over three months of, of protests um, that have included a whole range of different actions against the government, uh, including the one that was most recently in the media, being the, the referendum or national consultation that the opposition organised uh, in opposition to a government proposal to hold a constituent assembly as part of a national dialogue uh, to attempt to uh, make edits to the existing constitution and try to resolve some of the ongoing problems. Uh, but missing much of the media focus on the protests in the last three months is that this is really just part of an ongoing campaign that really has begun almost the day when Hugo Chavez, uh, the president who preceded Nicolas Maduro, was elected in 1998. Uh, it has to be understood that Chavez was a, a, a left-wing outsider uh, who came to political power when no one expected him to win the election. And from that time, together with uh, a people that had been highly mobilised, highly organised uh, against the neoliberal governments that preceded him, uh, began to move forward in a process they referred to as the, the Bolivarian Revolution, one that has dramatically expanded access to healthcare, to education, one that has raised living standards, reduced poverty rates, and one which every step of the way has faced increased opposition uh, pr- from the right wing uh, in, in that country, from the economic and political elites that lost power. That's why in Venezuela we've seen military coups, we've seen attempts to shut down the oil industry, which is of course vital for Venezuela. And that's why today, uh, once again, we see a, a, a right-wing attempt to basically overthrow a democratically elected government that's implemented progressive policies for its people. Hmm. Um, Zane, do you have a question? Uh, yes, I'm just... Um... Oh, wait, sorry about that. Um, mess up there. Zane, that has a question. Yeah, hi, hi Fred. Uh, so... I'm just interested in uh, Donald Trump's comments uh, about the Constituent Assembly, saying that uh, he he somehow finds this the fact that there's going to be a vote held to be anti-democratic, and the Defence Minister has come out just in the last couple of days and condemned that. Um, well, yes. Just to, to put a bit in context, or perhaps I should explain where the proposal for a constituent assembly comes from, mm. uh, to then return to your question about why 
why it's now being so heavily opposed by, by Donald Trump and obviously by the opposition in Venezuela. Of course, the interesting thing to note is that when the opposition won the last elections that were held in Venezuela, which was at the end of 2015, which were for the National Assembly, uh, and elections they won quite convincingly, and which the government, you know, accepted the results, and, you know, the, 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 the deputies were able to, to, to fill their spots uh, in, in the National Assembly, with the exception of three who, uh, where fraud cases were, were brought forward, and one of them including a, a government supporter, two from the opposition, but all the others were able to, to uh, take their seats in the National Assembly. It was actually at that point that the opposition themselves proposed the idea of a constituent assembly. They viewed that initially primarily as a way of removing Nicolas Maduro from power. Their idea was to reform the statute in the constitution that uh, mandates uh, the length of term for the president, and what they wanted to do was to reduce that and de facto reduce Maduro's uh, presidency and therefore be able to move to presidential elections sooner. No doubt they also hoped in that process to be able to essentially um, remove a lot of the progressive content in this constitution, which it should be noted was uh, drafted after Chavez was elected, was part of a nationwide discussion and was properly approved by the people and has very much become seen uh, as one of the most important gains of, of the sort of Hugo Chavez and Nicolas Maduro period. So the opposition proposed this. They asked for it. Uh, in, the, in the context of this latest wave of violence, Maduro has said, well, fine, let's go to a political debate. Let's go to an election. Let's have a national constituent uh, assembly. But by this point, obviously, the, the right wing have decided that their real aim is to get rid of Maduro. They're no longer interested uh, in, in this sort of democratic process. It's, it's all or nothing for them to get rid of Maduro. And hence, where the pressure from Trump comes along, uh, which he agrees with the right wing strategy, uh, which is essentially the only thing that matters in Venezuela is removing Maduro and the, the Chavistas from power. Everything else is just a distraction that must be opposed. Mm. That um, I guess that goes into the kind of next question um, I wanted to ask is basically you know you know how would you respond to you know there's a number there's a number of kind of myths being kind of peddled by the media and that's basically the first one is that um, how would you respond to you know this accusation that you know the Maduro government is you know this authoritarian government that you know is you know killing and shooting protesters and and so on and yeah and, and this is uh, because that's the kind of rationale that Donald Trump is using is on the basis that you know Maduro is undemocratic um, and that's he hence he has to be overthrown to make room for a democratic society or so and so on. Well, look, the, the, the easiest way to basically combat uh, a lot of these sort of myths that, that have been created or distortions that are created by the, by the media where the sort of labels are applied uh, is to simply look at the facts. Um, if we look at the question of authoritarianism, uh, I don't know of any country in the world that's had as many electoral processes as Venezuela has had uh, since 1998 when Chavez was first elected. We're looking at something like 20, 25 electoral processes that have happened in 19 years. And whilst some may want to criticise the fact that, the, for instance, the regional um, elections were recently postponed, they were meant to be held uh, last year uh, and weren't. Uh, this was not the first time this has occurred. It occurred previously, basically because of uh, the inability to hold the elections um, at that time, because of, firstly, the need for political parties to re-register, and secondly, the amount of resources that the National Electoral Commission had to put into the attempted recall referendum that the opposition ran meant that, that those elections from last year were postponed. 
But Maduro has already said those elections are going... Well, sorry, the National Electoral Commission, who's responsible for the elections, not the government, has already said that regional elections will be held at the end of this year. And in fact, in August, the registrations for candidates will open. The National Electoral Commission has also reaffirmed, and Maduro has reaffirmed that he supports this, that as per the Constitution, presidential elections will be happening next year. So what sort of authoritarian dictatorship continues to have elections even when, you know, as I noted in the last one, the National Assembly elections, they accepted their loss. If we look at the repression, once again, all we have to do is look at the breakdown of the figures of the people that have been killed and the reasons that have been killed to find that actually the majority of those have not been killed by security forces. Uh, the majority of those are either firstly, and the largest group continues to be in contention or under investigation, um, but if we then go to the next group, are those that have been killed either directly or indirectly by the actions of the opposition? Mm-hmm. Be that because they've been shot and killed by opposition protests, be that because of their um, road blockades that have been set up and accidents that have been caused at those road blockades or the inability of people to access uh, health care because they haven't been able to, to get to the necessary doctors or hospitals where they were trying to travel at. Um, be that of, of, of the sort of public lynchings and burnings that we've seen of, of humans that have been occurring. Now, there the number of cases where opposition protests have essentially doused people in petrol who they've accused of being government supporters uh, and you know, essentially setting them alight. Um, so, again, the figures also don't show that the majority of these deaths are the result of government repression. Without in any way here trying to pre- say that you know, there have been no acts of repression and it should be noted that we're now looking at somewhere between the uh, last figure that I saw was just over 30 security forces um, that have been detained because of their role uh, in acts of violence and repression. Uh, so certainly you know, this, the government itself uh, has noted that you know, in, in there have been instances where there have been abuses by the security forces, but they've also been quick to condemn them and to also bring those to, um, bring those to, to, uh, to justice, unlike the opposition who continue to refuse to criticise any of the actions taken by their supporters, even in front of, faced with footage of people being publicly set alight. Yeah, it'd be interesting to compare how many people have been um, shot dead by American police over the past hundred or so days as compared to people that have been killed but in, in all sorts, as you say, in, in all sorts of different ways in uh, Venezuela. And I'm, I don't think there's... A, any case where an American police officer has ever been detained uh, to investigate their their actions, and as we know in, in the U.S., people get shot and they just they do so they they shoot people with complete impunity. So it actually looks like there's a lot more accountability in Venezuela of of the military and of of police forces in instances where someone is is killed. No, I think, I think that's absolutely right, and, and, and the government has, has attempted to do that uh, for, for a long time. The, the, the real challenge and the real threat, I suppose, of what's happening uh, at the moment is given that we see the complete lack of um, interest in trying to bring anyone to justice from the opposition uh, of their own supporters who carry out violent acts, uh, and so we see that even when it has been clearly shown that people at an opposition protest organised by the opposition parties have got a person, stabbed them, beaten them, set them alight, resulting in their deaths. They've refused to condemn those acts. Um, mm. We can only begin to imagine what they, what kind of reign of impunity they may allow if they actually get into power. Uh, and in fact, we probably don't even need to imagine because we also know that when they were briefly in power, 
for 48, 47 hours in 2002 on the back of a military coup. Over 60 government supporters were, were killed or assassinated in those less than two days, and no one was ever brought to trial or to justice uh, for the actions that occurred under the, that coup government of 47 hours. Yeah. Um, the, the second question um, I kind of want to ask is because we've kind of been talking about um, the sort of, you know, a bit of a, the political kind of elements of um, the kind of political war that's kind of going on within the, between the kind of opposition and the left-wing government. Um, but the second kind of aspect, um, you know, that kind of you, you see kind of reflected in the media is basically, you know, um, this image of, you know, Venezuelans struggling to, you know, have their basic needs being met of, you know, lining up, you know, you know, the whole kind of bread lines, you know, waiting in line for food and, you know, basic goods being um, not set, um, um, Venezuelans being able, unable to buy um, basic goods. Um, and, you know, uh, from a left-wing perspective, you know, that kind of relates to this whole kind of, you know, economic war, you know, that's, you know, the conflict between, you know, the government and, the, you know, the basically the capitalist class. Um, and, you know, what can you tell us about, you know, what's really kind of happening there? Well, look, I, I think to understand the economic problems in Venezuela, uh, we have to look at three factors, of which the media only ever refers really to two of those. Uh, those two, the ones that the media refer to constantly, is obviously the, the falling oil prices and the impact that that, would have, that has had uh, on, the, on the national budget, uh, given that oil is such a critical export for Venezuela. Um, the second one being the currency controls that have been in place uh, in Venezuela uh, essentially since 2003 as an attempt to uh, evade or to stop capital flight out of the country and the government essentially controls access to dollars. And this has created a, a system that, whilst initially uh, was critical to stopping the flow of dollars out of the country, has certainly had very distorting effects on the economy and also, it must be said, contributed to uh, a, a certain level of corruption, not the level of corruption that the media sort of tries to present in Venezuela, but there is certainly, without a doubt, um, elements of corruption and that have occurred within this uh, currency control system that need to be dealt with uh, by the government. Uh, but the third aspect that is very rarely talked about is a concerted sabotage campaign by the economic and political elites in Venezuela to worsen the crisis. And there's no clearer example of both how evident this campaign is and how biased the media is, is when we saw recently when there was the, the big uh, media outcry about the fact that Goldman Sachs had bought some government bonds, uh, to which would essentially was going to provide some kind of uh, access to dollars uh, for the government that they could use to try to alleviate some of the economic problems that you refer to in your question. The opposition were the first to criticise this and to admit that they have been publicly campaigning to stop anyone from buying government bonds so that the government can have access to this money. So they've made it publicly clear that they do not want the government to be able to solve the economic problems. They want the humanitarian situation or the economic situation to worsen in order to justify their calls for international intervention. But none of this was really questioned in the media. Instead, it was almost sort of uh, accepted as a, it was, that was a good strategy, uh, something that should be supported, that the right wing essentially wanted to starve Venezuelans into opposing the government. Um, so they, these are really the three factors that have to be looked at. And if we look at the real hard economic data, we see that the actual campaign being waged by the economic elites 
of trying to push up prices, of trying to hoard and, and uh, um, uh, stop the imports of certain products that are very critical uh, to people's daily lives, uh, the, the constant process of contraband that has been occurring, of selling regulated price goods over in Colombia where they can be sold for much higher prices, reveals that the, you know, the economic situation can only really be understood by also including this first factor uh, into the frame, but one that the media not only doesn't doesn't talk about, but actually uh, actively encourages. Hmm. Yeah, um, Fred, um, we there's a f- still two to three things we wanted to talk to you about in this program, but I'm just going to play a quick announcement, um, and then we'll come back to you. Um, just so, just hold on for just forty seconds. No worries. Yarra Council presents the 5th Annual Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017. Opening on Thursday the 13th of July with Augie March at the Corner Hotel. Hosted in more than 40 music venues within the city of Yarra, the 10-day festival runs until Sunday the 23rd of July and features Ed Cooper, Dave Graney, the Letter String Quartet, Brooke Russell and Hungry Ghost Reformation Show. For participating menus and tickets go to Leaps and Bounds Music Festival dot com. 3CR supporter. Uh, you're listening to 3CR. Uh, this is Green Enough Radio for Friday Breakfast. It is 7.33, and if you've just uh, t- uh, tuned in, we are talking to Federico Fuentes, who's a Australia-Venezuela solidarity activist and Socialist Alliance member. Okay, so the next kind of aspect um, I wanted to talk to you um, about um, what's happening in Venezuela, Fred, is kind of like basically um, the... Because from... Um, you know, we've been talking about, you know, the kind of crisis that's kind of happening in Venezuela, you know, the, you know, the nature of the opposition, you know, the economic problems, um, you know, in life, but at the same time, you know, the Chavez government has, you know, made some really amazing social gains, um, for the Venezuelan people. And I kind of wanted to hear you comment on, you know, what is the kind of viability of, you know, the Venezuelan revolution, you know, at this stage of, you know, is it is it possible that they they can overcome this and continue to make the progress um, that they've made in the past? Look, I think that this is without a doubt the biggest crisis that the the Bolivarian process, uh, as it's been referred to in Venezuela, uh, has faced since Chavez was was first elected in 1998. It's much deeper than the crisis that occurred in 2002, 2003. Or in perhaps a better way to explain it, in 2002 we had the, uh, the military coup attempt as I, that I mentioned before that lasted for 47 hours before the, the people were able to restore Chavez back into government. And at the end of that, that year we had the, a, a lockout of the oil industry, essentially a boss's lockout that shut down the oil industry for two months and had a dramatic economic impact. What we're seeing today is very much a combination of those two things and over a much longer a prolonged period of time, so essentially a, a political coup and an economic sabotage um, that the, the process is facing. It's also occurring in, in a situation where the opposition have been able to build 
on the, the on the fact that there's been ongoing and deepening economic problems over the last three three or four years, and largely essentially since Chavez passed away, and also being able to build on the fact that the the Bolivarian process is is unable to count on on the kind of uh, uh, sort of political leadership that Chavez was able to to provide while while he was still alive. So they're facing a very big challenge, and I think what has been indicated, what we've seen over the last three months, is that the country is currently at somewhat of a stalemate. Uh, whilst the media likes to portray it as essentially a, a people versus an authoritarian government, the reality is that what we see on the streets today is not the overwhelming majority of the population. Uh, it's not a tiny minority either. It's a very significant section of the population that have been mobilising. But we also see that the government continues to also maintain a high level of support, particularly amongst the poorest sectors. Again, it also is not an overwhelming majority of the country, but nor are government supporters a tiny minority. And so we have a situation where how would this stalemate be broken? Of course, for the opposition, their interest is to break this stalemate by removing the Maduro government if any means necessary. Uh, from the government's viewpoint the ways to look for a peaceful way out of this current situation. Uh, they've promoted attempts to seek dialogue and negotiation that so far have been rebuffed, but that may be a possible way out. Uh, but there are no indications as yet that the leadership of the, of the right-wing opposition are interested uh, in that avenue. A second way out is obviously the constituent assembly elections that will be held on July 30. A mass turnout there um, and a thorough discussion may help to bring back some relative calm to the country, to bring people back to the political sphere in terms of having a public debate about how to resolve the country's problems and away from the current situation of street protests and street violence um, that has been occurring. Uh, but the, this is really the, the, the key challenge that the government faces if it wants to and the people face if they want to continue to be able to build on and get out of this crisis the Bolivarian process is in at the moment how to break the, the current stalemate. And I think in that regard, the July 30 Constituent Assemblies is going to be, the, the, the elections for the Constituent Assembly, sorry, uh, is going to be critical. Uh, and that's why the opposition will do everything they can between now and July 30 to stop these happening, uh, everything they can inside the country and outside the country, as we've seen with the sanctions that President Trump has uh, threatened Venezuela with, if they are to go ahead with these elections uh, on July 30. And, of course, from the government side, from the pro-government side, there'll be every attempt to mobilise people on that day to participate in the electoral process and show the world that there continues to be a very large section, perhaps even a majority of the population, uh, that want to see uh, democracy reign and want to see peace reign in Venezuela. Hmm. Amzan, you had a question? Um, yeah, just what's, what's going to happen if... Do, do you think there's potential for, like, a, you, you said before that there's potential for this to go, like, the way of, of Chile or something, like, there's, there's really kind of violent, um, there's some pretty sadistic, um, elements to the, uh, to the opposition. Uh, it, it would appear to me, though, that the, that the pro-Chavista forces are more, they have a, a much stronger link to the military than the Allende government did in Chile in, in the early 70s. 
Um, is there is there a prospect of civil war? Like, what's it's um, it's it's a very dangerous uh, situation. It strikes me. Uh, absolutely, and that's why I emphasise that the, the real critical sort of thing to understand in Venezuela is that we're very much at a stalemate where ne- neither side uh, is able to impose themselves, uh, whether that be uh, just through the simple authority that they have in society or whether that just be through, through outright force. Um, neither side, or certainly from the opposition side, there's no willingness to dialogue and I would, you know, say that also from within the Chavista sides, there's at least a section of the Chavistas of the government that are also, at this, by this point, so furious at the kind of violence that has been unleashed that they're also not interested in dialogue. Whether President Maduro has maintained that that is what he believes is the is the essential way um, out of out of the crisis. But really, what we are seeing is that as a result of this stalemate uh, and the, the, the increased sort of violence that is occurring is a threat of, of, of outright civil war. Um, and we're starting to see that, particularly as we see the more radical, essentially what you could define as fascist uh, sort of wing of the opposition, uh, essentially now becoming uh, somewhat autonomous uh, of, of anything that the, the leadership of the, the political leadership of the opposition say. Uh, and in fact, increasingly critical of the right-wing opposition as being too soft, as being... You know, to, not willing to go all the way to do what's necessary to, to get rid of Maduro. And so we've seen a, an increased level of, you know, basically armed, you know, sort of mobilizations by this section of, uh, of terrorizing of, of certain towns, um, that, that has been occurring. And, and this, you know, may, may certainly reach a situation where it spirals completely, uh, out, out of control. Uh, of course, there are other potential outcomes that would certainly be uh, horrific to, to consider. Uh, a military coup, and when I say a military coup, one that could, in some ways, be of of, of two forms. One is obviously a military coup <laughs> that, that essentially the military decide that uh, the opposition are now the, the the main sort of legitimate authority of power and decide to side with them, um, and therefore we see something as you mentioned akin to what what happened in in Chile. Uh, but we may also, you know, certainly could not be ruled out that a that a that a, a some a section of the military. Uh, in the name of defending the, the process, decide that you know they must remove Maduro from power in order to 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 maintain power, as, uh, to put it in, in a certain way. But that would also be a, a very dangerous situation. It would certainly begin to mark a, a potential end of the the, the democratic participatory uh, sort of nature of the Bolivarian process that has been so key to why uh, it has inspired sort of participation of poor people in Venezuela and why it's inspired. A lot of solidarity around the world, so it is a very difficult, a very dangerous situation. One that, unfortunately, the media coverage only further fans, uh, further uh, provokes, um, because of its inability to try and deal with the actual reality of what's going on the ground, and continue to present a distorted picture of so-called peaceful protesters against a completely violent uh, government, which only really just means that for the opposition, the more deaths, the better, because they know that anyone who dies in Venezuela will simply be reported internationally as just one more victim of of this criminal regime, as they like to deem it. Uh, And so we see this constant escalation of violence in that country. Hmm. And that get, get, maybe this, because we're getting, um, I think it might be getting time to conclude this interview, that um, brings me to the kind of, um, kind of last kind of, 
uh, section that I wanted to talk about is this basically, you know, what is happening in terms of, um, you know, in the case of Australia of, you know, the growing kind of movement for international solidarity with Venezuela? Well, look, here in Australia, we're, you know, obviously trying a key sort of role that the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network has been doing is trying to get out some some real basic information about uh, what's going on in the country because, you know, it's sort of somewhat, you know, bizarre to sort of see what what gets reported on the media, you know, the sort of uh, blatant distortions and lies about, you know, what is going on in that country. Uh, You know, the kind of things that would in no way uh, be covered in the same way if they occurred in, in other countries. I mean, you know, I, I will be interested to see how the media coverage, for instance, occurs today of the national strike that the opposition called, you know, which have occurred basically overnight. And what we've seen is, you know, that these, these strikes, um, or strikes, these protesters have essentially been shutting off blocks, uh, shutting off streets to ensure that people can't leave their homes to ensure so-called participation in their strikes. We've seen attacks on journalists who have tried to report the reality of what's going on. We've seen uh, the attempted burning of the state TV station. We've seen the burning of a police station uh, in Caracas. I mean, if these kind of actions happen in any other country in the world, uh, imagine, if they, imagine if in Europe, you know, protesters went and burnt down a police station and a TV channel and attacked uh, journalists, how that would be reported. Well, let's see how this gets reported today in, in, the, in the Australian media. That's why really one of our big tasks has been to try to get that, that information out, whether that be through uh, social media, uh, whether that be through a range of public meetings that we've been organising um, around the country, including uh, one that we'll be organising uh, in Melbourne um, at the end of this month as well. Yeah. Um, so for listeners' information, um, there's actually going to be two public meetings um, that Fred is going to be speaking at, actually, um, in Victoria. Um, the first one is on the 29th of July, which is a Friday um, night. Um, and that's going to be... 28th of July is the Friday. Yeah, 28th, sorry. Yep, yeah, 28th is... Uh, of July on a Friday at the Diversitat um, Community Centre. I think that's um, in Geelong. Um, you can probably just search it up on uh, on the internet. And then on the f- 29th, um, Fred will be speaking at Melbourne um, at 2pm on a Saturday um, at the Multicultural Hub in Melbourne. So yeah, that's um, that's um, those are the two public meetings you can attend, and we'll um, announce them again with full details on in the activist calendar when we get to that in 15 minutes. Um, but anyway, yeah, um, thanks so very much for your time, Fred. Um, it's very um, informative and interesting having uh, this discussion about Venezuela. Yeah, um, cheers, Fred. And we'll we'll probably be um, talking to you um, next Saturday. Fantastic, and thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, not a problem. Yeah, bye. <coughs> Yes, uh, Fred Fuentes there from the Australia-Venezuela Solidarity Network. You are listening to Green Left Radio. It is Friday morning, 7.47am, and you are on 3CR. Alright, so we'll play a few announcements before we go on to some uh, news from Green Left Weekly. My name is Selva Coolidge Elvin and I am fighting for my life. 
Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have to flee your own country, spend days or weeks in a leaky boat on dangerous rolling seas, and then arrive in a new country where you are terrorised even more? Well, that's the life confronting millions of people in this world who have no choice but to seek asylum. All these people want is a fair go, but here in Australia, our government, in our name, treats these desperate people with cruelty and inhumanity. Here at 3CR, we aim to give these people a voice, a chance to speak out and let you know that they are just like us, people with hopes and aspirations, people who deserve to be treated as we would expect to be treated if we found ourselves in this position. Refugee Radio is the voice of refugees. 10am every Sunday at 3CR 855 on the AM dial. So say I'm not a worthless human being Cause no one needs a worthless human being My family need a worthwhile human being Okay, um, good morning listeners We're listening, were you still listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on the 855 AM or on Free CR? So we just um, had an interview with um, Federica Fontes um, talking about politics in Venezuela. Um, if you had missed that interview, um, it will be podcast, um, so you'll have a cha- opportunity to listen to it later. Um, but now it's probably the time before the Actress Calendar that we share some news from the latest Green Left Weekly. Um, this is just a bit of an article, um, kind of goes and fits with the conversation we're having in the morning about um, climate change. Um, but basically, uh, you know, the, the G20 summit happened recently in Germany, um, in July, you know, when world leaders, you know, they basically broke with the United States on climate change and reaffirmed their commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement at the, the Group of 20 summit in Hamburg, Germany, um, which brings together representatives from, you know, some of the world's largest economies. But, you know, the actual reality, <laughs> of what these world leaders are actually doing in terms of climate change, you know, actually tells a different story um, because there was actually, you know, as noted in this article, you know, the new report has basically exposed the strong support for large fossil fuel corporations from G20 governments as a whole. You know, the, the final joint statement, you know, um, from the G20 summit took the unusual step of acknowledging the US rejection of the Paris deal while, you know, realizing the rest of the world's support for the landmark climate group. You know, this is what Democracy Now! reported. But, of course, um, you know, in during the G20 talks, there were, you know, Greenpeace activists outside the G20 summit, you know, called on world leaders to raise their level of ambition beyond the climate Paris Climate um, Accord. Um, of course, but, um, you know, just one of the more interesting things is, you know, Despite the fact that, um, you know, despite the fact that, you know, the G20 leaders talk this kind of rhetoric, um, you know, has, you know, governments, for example, the German government, um, the, who were the hosts of the G20 this year, so it's Chancellor Merkel at the helm, has, you know, been providing more public finance to fossil fuels than to clean energy. You know, same with, you know, Canada, for example. Justin Trudeau talks about, you know, this rhetoric of, you know, addressing climate change, um, but, you know, he still give, you know, still lets, you know, oil pipelines, um, being built. And of course, um, and then, 
you know, looking, uh, there was also a report, and this report had also said, we've also looked at oil and gas finance and found that nearly half for public finance for energy provided by G20 governments, um, so it, that, you know, it's basically dwarfs or other sources of education um, in terms of pu- the public support, and especially into things like liquefied, you know, natural gas. So I think, you know, you know, um, summarising that article, it kind of kind of shows, you know, the hypocrisy hypocrisy of you know these world leaders you know they can talk about you know how they about you know they how they you know firm agreement with this paris climate accord yet when they go back home in their own countries they do absolutely nothing to address climate change and actually contribute more to the crisis um, that we face you know which kind of shows we were at this point that you know we actually can't rely on our governments who are in the pockets of corporations to address climate change it's actually going to be up to us you know to take collective action and to put the pressure or even you know form our own you know basically form form our own institutions and our own um you know put forward our alternative you know and implement that from in within the context for say a new economic system yeah yeah all right i'll just go play another announcement and we can go and there's some more new stories here <coughs> Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. So tune in to 3CR Community Radio 8.55 on your AM dial on Thursday afternoon from 3.30 until 4 o'clock. And let's get radical about philosophy. Okay, go back on Green Left Weekly Radio. Now, moving away from the international, because I think a lot of this program has been dedicated to international matters up to this point, although we did have a bit of a discussion about um, the kind of constitution, the Australian constitution, and the kind of injustice of Senator Larissa and Scott Ledham having, from the Greens having to resign. Um, but it looks like there's going to be a big kind of workers' kind of struggle um, coming up quite soon, um, basically in relation to the ETU. Um, you know, Nicholas James here writes here on this article, ETU promises mother of all battles at Casino Crown. Um, just months after the electronic um, trade union, ETU, victory against the Carlton United Breweries, a much battle, larger battle looms over Melbourne's industrial landscape. And then he reports here that, you know, in early July... Um, the Benamuth um, Crown Casino laid off its entire electoral workforce. Like the Carlton Brewery before it, the casino has tendered an electric um, gaming contract to the poker machine supplier Amtec. Just three weeks ago, Amtec advertised the new casino positions with wages set at 50% of the old salary. Um, the ETU has promised them the mother of all battles at Crown Casino, something which has not been seen since 20,000 protesters blocked um, Crown Casino at the 2000 World Economic Forum. Um, the union is gearing up for a long and protracted uh, union campaign against the sacking of 126 workers who previously earned seven over well over seventy thousand dollars a year. The ETU said the technicians who have been doing the work for twenty years have been told they can't apply for new jobs and their replacements will be on half their pay, which just under thirty six thousand which is 
that's what that's actually the pay I was getting as a as a part time childcare worker when I was working um, as a coordinator for an after school care program. I mean, the thing is, these casinos are like economic parasites that that prey on the working class. You get gambling addicts walking in there and pouring absolutely obscene amounts of money into these machines. These are extremely profitable places. They vacuum money out of the working class every single day. There is absolutely no reason to be cutting the wages. They could pay all of those staff double what they get now and still turn (coughs) a massive profit. Mm. It is just the the sheer greed of it. It's disgusting. Yeah, and here's here's where, you know, and in the article here, um, Nicholas kind of puts a pretty interesting kind of narrative around it but here's where it gets even more funny and more interesting but you know the corporation um amtech that um crown casino is sort of contracting out to um it's actually led by none other than the former liberal premier jeff kennett so yeah we're going to um, we're going to be in for a, it's going to be an interesting industrial campaign to follow. Um, it's actually going to be getting started um, this Tuesday, actually, um, at 10:30am um, AM. Um, ETU workers and unionists will actually be protesting outside the Crown Casino at 10:30. So this should pro- be, you know, I think this is going to be a, a big industrial campaign mm. to follow. Um, especially, you know, the forces involved, you know, you have Jeff Kennett versus the NTU, and obviously the NTU being the progressive union will have, you know, the support of left-wing forces. And the NTU, the, the ETU. ETU, ETU, sorry, yeah. yeah. The ETU, and, and hopefully, you know, they'll start building links with, you know, other unions like the CUB campaign, you know, gets union mm. support from the CFMU, for example. And, and that's the flip side of that. If you can blockade that thing and stop people getting in there, they will squeal because you will be stopping this torrent of money that they are getting every day from those horrible machines. Yeah. I used to work at a place like that in Newcastle, and it was so depressing. I'd have to pick up glasses and wipe out ashtrays and do the dishes whilst there's a bunch of people just sitting there like zombies pouring their money into these machines. Quite a lot of older people too, like someone who's whose partner has died perhaps and they've they've got some inheritance from their partner and, and you know, they're feeling depressed and lonely because their their life partner of who knows how long is now gone and to try and fill the void they go and pour all this money into those machines and it's it's just such an insidious industry. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's actually even something that the ETU kind of acknowledges. You know, having a casino in your state, you know, has many downsides, has lots of, de- has many downsides. But of course, what they say here, you know, the context of this industrial battle is, you know, but at least we thought we could have good, secure jobs from it, which is looking like it's not even going to become a reality anymore because of what, um, you know, Crown Casino in collaboration with um, Amtec are doing um, here to attack workers. Mm. So, yeah, this is going to be, as I wrote before, it's going to be an interesting um, thing to follow. Um, so stay tuned for more updates on this campaign um, as it goes along. Mm. Yeah, good on them. Okay, so we'll just go play a few announcements and then move on to um, the activist calendar. 
Smith Street Dreaming has become one of the area's most anticipated street festivals, featuring Pigeon Jarrah Man, Frank Yammer, Soul Diva Emma Donovan, Hip Hoppers Young Warriors, Indigenous Hip Hop Projects Wurundjeri Dance Group Jindy Warraback, MC Shelley Ware from the Mangwok Footy Show and much more. Smith Street Dreaming on the corner of Smith and Stanley Streets, Collingwood, Saturday the 22nd of July, 1 till 5pm. Smith Street Dreaming. One street, many mobs, one community. This is an alcohol and drug-free event. A 3CR supporter. The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. The Book Fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops. It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk. It's free and we also provide free childcare. At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm. Find out more at www.amelbournebookfair.org. Or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Okay, good morning, um, listeners. You're listening to, you're still listening to Green Left Weekly Radio on 855 AM. Um, now is the time for the activist calendar where we're going and advertising a number of events on how you can get involved, um, this week. Um, this Friday, um, today there's a right to work conference happening, um, basically discussing, you know, a solution to unemployment and underemployment. Um, that's going to be at the NTEU offices at the 120 Clarion Street in South Bank. Um, that's probably going to be happening from 9 a.m. I imagine it's going on all day, um, but you can probably buy tickets at the door. Um, so, yeah, if you're interested in coming along to that, that that's happening all day um, from 9 a.m. or to 5 p.m. Um, there'll be a protest in Campwell, um, uh, basically against the uh, Dani Gold, Gold Mine at outside Joss Frydenberg's electoral office at 695 Burke Road at Campbell. Um That is going to be at 5 p.m. and it's organised by the Kuyong Stop Adani Action Group. Um, over the weekend um, will be the Power Shift Conference. Um, that'll be at the Shrobe University in Bondura. Um, so check, check out the Power Shift website to find out information on how you book. And we'll also be doing an interview um, in nine minutes about the conference just to find out more. There'll be a protest <coughs> happening at, on Saturday, a roll against coal, um, which is hosted by Stop Adani Melbourne. That's um, basically, it's going to be we're encouraging people to, you know, bring their bikes along and um, to meet up at the State Library, um, you know, to do a bit of a roll around with, you know, advertising um, on the of the Stop Adani campaign where, and then going to Commonwealth Bank to do a bit of an action. Um, that's happening from 9am to 2pm. Um, those who don't have a bike or don't want to bike ride, um, they're encouraging people to meet at 9.45am to go to the Commonwealth Bank. Um, there'll be a festival, the Smith Street um, Dream, which we played an announcement earlier. That's at 1 to 5 p.m. this Saturday at the corner of Stanley and Smith Streets in Collingwood. Um, Zane, you want to do an announcement? Yes. Uh... Oh. Yes, uh, so uh, there's a meeting being organised by the Breakthrough Institute 
called Refreezing the Arctic with Dr. Hugh Hunt. Uh, Dr. Hugh Hunt is a reader in the Department of Engineering at the University of Cambridge and has spent over 10 years researching uh, climate engineering. Dr. Hunt believes that engineering to cool the planet may be necessary to tackle climate change. How could this be done? Is it safe? What might be the uh, implications? So that is happening Monday the 31st of July uh, and that's from 6 till 7.30pm at the Australian German Climate and Energy College, 187 Grattan Street, Carlton. Uh, so yeah, it's, that will be an interesting meeting. Geoengineering is obviously a very fraught space because the capitalists will use geoengineering as an excuse not to cut emissions, not to do anything. Is it safe, as the meeting says? Um, conversely, though, even if we had our climate revolution tomorrow and completely decarbonised the economy within the next eight or ten years, there's a very good chance that the Arctic is going to start melting out annually. There's going to be albedo flip. There's going to be methane pouring out of that permafrost. Uh, so... Yeah, geoengineering is something that needs to be uh, talked about, even mm. though it's it's potentially got quite uh, problematic implications. Um, there's going to be, uh, on Monday, July 24th, there's going to be a March, Youth Choose Climate Justice. This is actually part of the PowerShift conference. But yeah. This is going to be a rally that everyone, who, you know, what, even if they weren't participating in the conference, um, is welcome to join. That's it's that's going to be on Monday, the twenty fourth of July, at ten thirty a.m. at the Melbourne at the Melbourne Town Hall at Swanson Street in the city. Nice. Um, there'll be a public meeting organised by Refugee um, Action Collective at six thirty p.m. at the Shrades Hall, foot fifty four Victorian Street, Carlton South. Um, basically discussing how can we break the bipartisan support for offshore protesting, and features a number of different speakers. And that's on Tuesday the twenty fourth as well. No, no, Monday, July twenty fourth. Oh, all right, yeah. Monday. Yeah. Um, on Tuesday, July twenty fifth, um, following on from the discussion and we had about um, the Kennet Crown deal to sack casino workers, um, that we rallied to stop the Kennet Crown deal, um, and it, that will be at twelve pm at the south entrance of the Crown Casino, eight Whiteman Street, South Bank. Um, so that that's going to be important um, rally to go to. Um, there'll be on Friday, July 28th, there'll be another film screening of Garden the Galilea, but this time in Broad Meadows, um, at 180 to 182 Will, Woodford Street. Um, it's hosted by the Broad Meadows Progress Association. Um, there'll be another, actually, there'll be another bike rally, um, happening, um, in, on next Saturday on July 29th. Um, basically, burn calories, not coal, and it'll be cycling through marginal seats in Melbourne to show our MPs that we are moving beyond coal, and it'll be starting at Michael Danby's office in St Kilda, and it'll be pedalling 50 kilometres to boy Bill Shorten's office in Mooney Ponds. Mm. Um, so that, that will be starting at 10 a.m. at 117 Fitzroy Street in um, St Kilda. Um, that's on Saturday, July the 29th. Um, also happening on... July the 29th um, will be a public meeting on Venezuela behind the crisis. Um, that'll be happening from 2pm at the Multicultural Hub at 
506 Olympia Street in the city and has a range of speakers, including um, Katrina Kozak, um, who's a Venezuelan journalist and activist, Federica Fontes, who we just interviewed earlier, and Lucho, um, a Lasnet activist who's recently visited Venezuela. Um, there'll be a fundraiser on Sunday, July the 30th, um, Jam for Jobs and Justice, the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, invites you to our special fundraiser, and that'll be at the 2pm at the Bella Union Bar, Level 1, the Shrades Hall, Corner of Ligon and Victoria Street, Carlton South. Um, yes, there's, um, that's the Wednesday, August... Oh wait, this is a different, this is actually a different meeting, um, from what you mentioned. I thought this was the same meeting, but on Wednesday, the August 20th, there's a public meeting. August 2, isn't it? Yep, August 2, there's actually a public meeting on the, uh, Antarctica and the climate, and some advertising that join Chris Tonley as he explores the past, present, and future of the Antarctica, a continent that acutely bears the impacts of our changing climate, and the leads the expedition that inadvertently sent him following um, the fateful part of Ernest Shackleton, one of um, Antarctica's unluckiest adventures. And that's going to be at 6.15pm at the Wheeler Centre, 176 Little Lonsdale Street, um, city. I'd probably, if you would like to go to that public meeting, I'd probably advise going to the Wheeler Centre um, website and probably make it a booking because I think those meetings usually book out quite quickly. Um, there'll be a public meeting organised by the new International Bookshop, um, educating the haves and have-nots, what makes a difference, featuring a range of speakers such as Jane Kenway from a professor at Monash, Mary Brené, who's also head of the education department at Victoria University, um, Lou Zippen, who's education, also part of the education department at Victoria University, and we'll also have Janet Rice. So that's at 7pm at the New International Bookshop at 54 Victoria Street, Carlton South. Um, there'll be a protest on Saturday, the August 15th, um, stopping to, um, protesting against Turkey's invasion. Saturday, August 5th. August 5th, yep. Yeah. P- um, stop um, protesting against Turkey's invasion of Syria. Um, that will be at 1pm at the State Library. Um, now, going through, just go through two more announcements as quickly. Uh, on Tuesday, August the 18th, there will be a protest. No student fees increase. The Liberals are still trying to make it more expensive to go to university. Um, and for, attempting to force us to pay back at a hex set when we're earning far less than the average salary. So that will be hosted by NUS and Make Education Free Again, and that's at 2pm at the State Library, 328 Swanson Street in the city. Um, there'll be a Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair happening at or August the 20th from 10am. Uh, August 12th. August 12th, yep. Yeah. Sorry, I keep messing. Keep <laughs> What's going on, Jacob? Uh, August 12th. <laughs> um, yeah. 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. at the Brunswick Town Hall, 233 Sydney Road, Brunswick. Yeah, that sounds uh, good. And now the last announcement um, was um, from Friday the August the 18th to August the 20th will be the Radical Ideas Conference, um, sparking the resistance. Um, we live in an era of racism, misogyny, growing wealth inequality, runaway climate change and war. It's time to fight back. Um, that will be at the Electrical Trades Union Building at 200 Arden Street in North Melbourne, and there'll be a conference that will have a variety of different workshops and sessions. Um, I'll, I can announce that, you know, we'll have, there'll be panels on women, um, on feminism, and we'll feature guest speakers such as um, Celeste Little, um, uh, Nathan Roberts, who's a UK activist um, who will be flown in, um, who's invo- who has been involved in the Corbyn campaign, and it's also we're also and there'll be more speakers announced um, as the, as it, as it comes along. But that should be a good um, conference. And for more info on the agenda, see 
Radical Ideas conference on Facebook. Um, and yeah. Hey. Cool. Heaps of stuff. So um, just I'll play a quick announcement and we'll go on to our next interview. Radiothon 2017. 3CR, Radio for Change. 9419 3CR.org.au. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. 3CR, Radio for Change. That's what I want. 9419-8377. VCR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Radiothon 2017. 3CR, Radio for Change. 9419 3CR.org.au in life are free but you can give them to the birds and bees I want money 3CR Radio for Change that's what I want Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Okay, so on the line, um, sorry for the delay, um, listeners, but we have um, Kelly from the AYCC on the line, um, Australian Youth Climate Coalition. Um, we've got her um, on the line to talk about um, the Power Shift Conference um, that is happening this weekend in Melbourne. Um, so good morning, Kelly. 
Hi, how are you going? I'm good. All right, so what can you um, maybe just give a, a summary of, you know, um, tell us about a bit about the PowerShift conference and, you know, what um, is kind of the kind of aim of this, of the conference? Yeah, so PowerShift is a big youth climate summit. Um, we've held them a few times here in Australia and they happen all around the world. Um, with the aim to bring together young people from all different backgrounds um, to learn how to take action on climate change. So they get inspired by um, speakers, they learn skills in workshops and they take action together. Um, and so we're coming together this year because obviously it's a really critical time um, in our political climate and our global climate to be ma- really making sure we reduce emissions really rapidly um, and build 100% renewable energy. Um, and so we really want to make sure we give all these young people, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous, through our work with the Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network, um, the skills that they need to go into their communities and win campaigns that reduce pollution and give us a safe climate future. Yeah. So what are kind of like, because um, looking at the conference website, um, there appears to be kind of some central themes of the conference. So what are the kind of central campaigns? Um, tell us a bit more about the central campaigns that the conference is going to be focusing on? Yeah, so the kind of overarching theme of the whole um, three days is climate justice. And climate justice is really about um, making sure that the people who are affected most by the problem um, are at the very forefront of the issue, both speaking out and of the solutions. Um, And so we've got lots and lots of um, Indigenous speakers from all over the world and from here in Australia. Um, And we're really going to be focusing on two major campaigns. So that's the um, campaign to stop Adani's coal mine in Queensland. Um, Obviously, a huge climate disaster will destroy the Great Barrier Reef um, and put our uh, future at risk. Um, It's just a really bad idea. And we want to ban fracking in the NT. Um, Right now, 85% of the Northern Territory is under gas licence. And so... We're working, we'll see it as working with traditional owners across the NT to um, make sure that what the what they got in the election, which was a moratorium on fracking, um, it turns into a full-on ban so that we can um, continue to protect the precious water and land and culture out there. Yeah. Um, what can you tell us about, um, you know, what are some of the exciting kind of guest speakers, um, both international and local, that you'll be having speaking at this um, Youth Summit? Yeah, so really excited that we've got some amazing guest speakers. Um, we've got Candy Mossett from um, the, the US, who um, was a key leader in the Standing Rock campaign against the, a big oil pipeline going through North Dakota. Um, she's an incredible um, woman, really um, a big advocate of First Nations people standing up for our climate. Um, I actually saw her um, speak in 2009. She came to PowerShift, which was my first ever experience and was kind of the thing that got me committed for the rest of my life. Mm. Um, just hearing her passionate story about the way that her community was treated. Um, and then we've got Ariel Derringer from um, Canada, who's been... Um, fighting tar sands, the um, toxic oil projects um, through Canada and through the US um, and doing that from a really First Nations perspective, protecting culture and climate. Um, and then we've got some incredible Australian speakers as well, some of the best climate scientists like um, Terry Hughes, um, who has been looking at all the 
coral bleaching across the Great Barrier Reef. Um, we've got some um, incredible speakers from um, coal communities um, as they kind of transition away from coal power, um, looking at what comes next. So we've got Gary from Port Augusta um, and Wendy from the Latrobe Valley. Um, and just a whole bunch of amazing young people. So we've got some community organisers um, from the union movement, from New Zealand, from um, different environment groups, um, and just like really highlighting the incredible work that young people are already doing on the ground. Yeah. Um, Joe, can you tell us a bit more um, about the gender? What kind of workshops in terms of like, you know, sessions, um, skills workshops that will be kind of featured um, at the conference? Yeah, plenty of skills. It's all about um, hands-on practical activities. I like to say that the um, motto of the conference is no boring slideshows. So um, lots of participation. So we've got um, skills about having conversations to stop Adani, skills about how to use video to stop the fossil fuel industry, um, different um, like or community organising skills. Um, like building a local group or giving a powerful public speech. Um, and then we've got different panels as well, so like the best experts um, really deep diving into a particular issue, um, whether that's um, just like uh, one of my favourite sessions is called How to Be a Boss Woman, um, so like for women to kind of step into their leadership. Um, we've got some about um, like looking into different businesses that are um, not destroying the planet while they're making profit um, and just a whole bunch of different really practical skills that you need to take action on climate change. Yeah. I guess um, I have to get two more questions now. Um, the other question is just telling a bit about the logistics of the conference. So is it correct that um, this the Saturday and the Sunday will go from 9am to 5pm at the Shrobe University? Yep, La Trobe Bandura. Yep. yep, and um, where, where is the specific location that the, most of the conferences are going to be held in, within the Shrobe? Yeah, so it's um, mostly at Union Hall. Um, the big kind of main stage will be in there. And then we're in ELC and TLC, um, kind of in those buildings. Um, and we've got a party on, t- tom- on tomorrow night as well. At the Eagle Bar? Yeah. 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 Okay. So the the second question is on the Monday. Um, yep. What is kind of like the, the plan um, for that? Like, because I've heard that there is going to be a big sort of rally with the conference participants planned, and I think it's being publicised quite openly to the public as well. At can you tell us a bit more about that rally that is being planned on Monday of the conference? Yeah. So um, everyone at the conference will be taking action, understanding that once you learn all of the things about the climate crisis, you kind of, in order to not send you into despair, you need to take collective action. So we'll be taking to the streets um, at 10.30 from Melbourne Town Hall. Um, We'll be marching for climate justice led by First Nations people. Um, And with our core asks being Stop Adani and Ban anti-fracking. So we'll have a big march through the city ending at Federation Square and we'll hear from some amazing um, young Aboriginal um, speakers as well as some high school students um, and our international guests Candy and Ariel um, and hopefully make a splash.
Okay, thanks for that, um, Kelly. I guess the last question is um, how can you um, attend the conference and where can you book your tickets? Yeah, sure. You can still grab your tickets. Um, it's tomorrow, so get in quick. Um, but head to powershift2017.org.au and you can find everything you need there. We're also only $400 off meeting our um, fundraising goal for scholarships, so we've given a lot of free tickets and supported people with travel to get to PowerShift. Um, and so we've been fundraising for that. So if you are over 30, you can also donate to um, help out some young people who want to take action on climate change. Yeah, um, and also um, I guess what just a bit of a, it's just a bit of a question out of curiosity. Um, mm. How many young people are going to be the conference? Because I've been hearing, I think I heard the figures that there's going to be over 800 to 1,000 people confirmed to be coming to the conference. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's about 800. Um, 200 of those will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, which I think is really exciting, which oh, I think nice. will be the biggest ever gathering of um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people ever. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. That's really good to see is expanding that, that like relationship with SEED and with them becoming such a major part of uh, AYCC. That's great. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. All right. Um, thank you very much um, for your time. And I'll, I'll probably actually see you at PowerShift because I'm going to be there for all three days. So Awesome. Great. Thank you very much. Look forward to meeting you. Cool. Bye. Bye. All right. And that was Kelly McKenzie there from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition. And as you heard, the AOSCC are having their uh, power shift conference at La Trobe Uni this weekend. Alrighty. We are going to wrap it up pretty much and hand it over because Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, once again, going to be rocking your radio on a Friday morning like they do. So, uh, yeah, I'd like to thank all our guests for being in the program. We had um, Kelly McKenzie and Fred Fontes. Um, so, yeah, basically, uh, to those who are listening, you know, stand up and start fighting for a better world. And of course, if you want to read more about any of the stories we've been discussing this morning, check out greenleft.org.au. And, uh, yeah, get amongst it. And go along to 3cr.org.au. If you haven't donated to Radio Son, it's not too late. Get in um, there. Yep, make a donation at 3cr.org.au slash donate. Um, and um, Green Left Weekly Radio, well, Green Left Radio still needs to reach a bit more for its fundraising target, so we urge you, if you're going to donate, to nominate Green Left Radio <laughs> as your program. All right, thank you, listeners. Um, Cheers, it's time for Beyond Zero Emissions. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You know, if people say, oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few scungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR so that your dollars support Indigenous voices and the struggle for land justice. 
for Aboriginal people, the greatest grief of all is seeing the country destroyed. And somewhere along the line, we have to realise that we have, don't actually have the right to do that. That nothing we've ever done has given us the right to do that. Now, you know where I stand on this, because I'm so simple-minded, I think we've just got to admit that this is an Aboriginal country. Just do it.